This is the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, where you'll hear about many aspects of law in England and Wales with special guests, industry experts, and local charities. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello, and welcome to season four of the Legal Lounge. If you haven't heard the shows in the first three seasons, there's plenty of content for you if you're going through a divorce, want to know more about claiming for injuries, or if you're training to be a lawyer. You'll also meet some amazing local charities and learn about the work they do. You can listen to these shows on your favourite podcast app and get more information by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, Adam Hodgson and Laura Weir, solicitors in our clinical negligence department, discuss the basics of inquests, which are fact-finding exercises to establish who died, where, how and when they died. They talk about benefits of these now taking place via Zoom or Teams and the importance of putting the family at the heart of the process. Hi, I'm Laura Weir and I'm with my colleague Adam. Hello. And today we're going to talk back to basics, all about inquests and the role of the coroner. So we've got a real mix today actually because I am admittedly quite a novice um, when it comes to inquests. No, but no, no. <laughs> we've got, you're very kind, but I am. But we've got the benefit today of Adam, who alongside his work here at LB, he's also an assistant coroner. So we've actually got an expert with us. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> so let's kick it off. And Adam, do you want to explain who a coroner is? What is a coroner? Yeah, sure. So a coroner is an independent judicial office holder or a judge in layman's terms, and they are responsible for investigating deaths uh, in, in very specific circumstances. So they investigate deaths where a cause of death is unknown, where a death occurred in custody or state detention. So if they're in prison, police custody or detained under the Mental Health Act, where a death is violent, including self-harm or suicide, and where there's reasonable cause to suspect that a death is unnatural. And so in the context of clinical negligence cases, that will include deaths that were more than minimally contributed to by medical treatment or procedure. So, for example, if the death was due to a recognised complication of a treatment or a surgery, or the death was more than minimally contributed to by shortcomings in that medical treatment. So that's where we would get involved in inquests predominantly within the, the clinic neg field, I think. Back to you then, Laura. What would you say is an inquest? So, recently I've been asked by a client what um, an inquest can find. So, an inquest is a fact-finding inquiry, and they're designed to answer four questions and actually the scope is quite stringent in that they will stick to these four questions so who died and where when and how did they die so most of the time we know who has died and where they have died so typically the majority of inquests will focus on how that person died yeah i think that's right i I read a good quote from a coroner colleague over in the states um, and he said that basically his job and the job over there quote they officiate at the end of things Uh, they examine the departure they document the last moments of life and the small slither of the world that surrounded it. I think that's quite a, a nice way of, of putting it, I think. Yeah, yeah, of course. So we've sort of touched on this, but Adam, can a coroner find blame? No, it's not a coroner's role to apportion blame, unfortunately. And a coroner's conclusion at the end of an inquest, it will not name any individual or organisation as being either negligent or criminally liable for the death. And this can be really difficult, actually, for families, because often they want to hold a person or an organisation or a doctor to account but unfortunately 
unfortunately, the inquest and the inquest process, it's not the place to do that. During the evidence being heard at the inquest, the coroner will examine the medical treatment that the patient received and in doing so will identify in public any shortcomings in care which more than minimally contributed to the death. So actually in real terms, it does feel like they apportion blame, but legally they're not allowed to put it on the final documents effectively. Yeah, you've just mentioned there about someone or an organisation being criminally liable for the death. Just to talk briefly about the interplay between criminal proceedings and the inquest. So recently I've had it where there's ongoing criminal proceedings and therefore the coroner doesn't want to touch it. Why is that? Yeah, basically you, you, the, the coroner can't effectively rehear an already tried case. So for example, if there's been a murder, the inquest will be opened because the person has died a violent and natural death. But then the coroner will suspend and adjourn the inquest to allow the criminal proceedings to be concluded. And typically, if there is a conviction, um, there's no need for the coroner then to reopen matters because the criminal proceedings dealt with it and, and heard it in one go. So that's usually why, where there's an active criminal case going on, they step back and let them do their thing effectively. So, yeah, you're right. Okay. So, I feel like I'm asking you all the questions here. But um, we're obviously initially approached by families and often they've never been involved in the inquest process before and they just really don't know what to expect. I know that inquests are portrayed differently on TV and there's a lot of programmes like The Coroner and CSI where it's heavily dramatised. But what is the actual process like? And when you step into that room, whether it's virtually or in real life, what should they expect? Yeah, I think you're right, isn't it? It's not like it is on TV. So like The Coroner and CSI Miami and etc. It's really dramatised for obvious reasons because it makes good telly. Effectively, what I would advise my clients is that an inquest isn't a trial. It's not designed or allowed to find blame or fault like we've discussed earlier but it's a fact-finding hearing and it's designed to answer the four questions that you spoke about earlier and at its heart it's it's geared towards allowing a coroner to investigate to carry out an inquisitorial process to gather evidence to answer those four questions and then reach a conclusion of how that person died at the end therefore it's important that everybody involved actually works collaboratively with the coroner to come to the end of that conclusion. And I just said about it being in person or remotely. Obviously, since the pandemic, most court hearings, including inquests, have moved to a more remote or hybrid option. Um, so it's the same with inquests, and they can be done by Zoom now or Teams. And I think technology's had a really positive impact, actually, in that, well, I've recently had one where it was a mix of in-person and on Teams, and the family found it a lot easier to be part of discussions when they were at home. Yeah. Have you found that as well? Absolutely. I mean, it allows um, consultants, police officers and things of like that, it allows them time to give their evidence in court, technically, even though they're, you know, it's been done remotely. And then it allows them to go back to their duties. Whereas, you know, if they attended court, sat in court waiting for their turn, they could be out of out of office um, for a number of hours and actually it allows them to go back to their important work that they do. How did you find it when you had your inquest? Well, actually, it was the pre-inquest review which we haven't really covered but it's a meeting where you sit down to do the sort of admin side of the inquest and set out who you're going to hear from and how many days and so it was really helpful because that ended up actually being adjourned until later that day whereas if it had been in person that would have been really annoying and that we'd have to go home and then come back or wait around the court all day but because we were able to join by teams it was actually a matter of just logging on in the morning and then logging in again in the afternoon so it was really straightforward. Yeah and it, it, like, like we said it, it is it does make the whole process 
process a, a lot, lot easier, I think. It's not available and suitable for all people because certainly some people can't access the technology. They're not good with computers. Some doctors, witnesses can't give evidence remotely. And so in those circumstances, you can have the hybrid model where some are in court and some are online as well. I have had and heard some horror stories about doing things uh, online. The important thing is that even if it's being held remotely via Zoom or, or MS Teams, is you, it's, you've got to treat it as if it's a court. You've got to give it the, the due respect and dignity that it deserves. And I've, I've heard, like I said, horror stories of people giving evidence in their pyjamas. One witness actually giving evidence while they're driving. You know, clearly not appropriate and it caused a bit of chaos on the day, but no, quite yeah. funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've touched upon police and medics giving evidence, but who needs to give evidence, I guess, is a question for the coroner and it's their discretion who they'll call. Um, it is helpful for the families, I think, to hear from the medics involved in the care if it is a hospital-based death. I think it's actually, it's quite unique and that is probably one of the only times that you would hear from them, say for if you went to a full-blown clinic trial. Yes. But I think it can cause upset when there are certain medics that they think are key players and maybe the coroner thinks that they're, you know, they don't need to be called. So it's just a balance, isn't it, of who they call? Yeah, and I think from, from experience, what will tend to happen is rather than call like seven, eight, nine witnesses in total all saying the same thing, what a coroner can do is effectively ask for a summary statement. So somebody who's a little bit more senior who can review all of the, the, the activity that took place and then provide a, a narrative for the coroner to utilise. So, yeah, in those circumstances, that makes the process a lot more easier for the inquest to be heard. But as you say, for the family, it can be quite upsetting that they don't get a chance to question the doctor in at that point. Yeah. As a coroner yourself, do you think it's really important to hear from the family if they've got the sort of strength to do it? 100%, yes, absolutely. I mean, the whole point of an inquest is that it's geared towards putting the family and the, of the bereaved at the heart of the system. Some families have difficulty for, for obvious reasons, but I think the, the coroner's function is to allow the family to, to be engaged and be part of that process because their evidence is important. as It's more potentially important than the clinicians involved because you know, it's their loved one, it's their spouse, mum, dad, auntie, uncle that they lost. So it's it's very important that they're involved. And I think what is important for the family when you're explaining how it works and what to expect is what a coroner can find. So do you want to take us through what they can find? Yeah, sure. So they've got wide discretion to determine the scope of an inquest, which effectively be what the inquest will cover. And then the the verdicts, they used to be called verdicts, they're now called conclusions, they can have many, many different options open to them when they make their, their final determination. So they can have things called a short-form conclusion, basically short little words that describe a death. So it could be things like suicide, natural causes accidental death. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of them, so I won't go into all of them. If the circumstances of the, of the death don't fit into that little short-form box, as it were, they can make what's called a narrative conclusion, and that allows them to make a brief, neutral and factual statement, usually one or two paragraphs, which addresses the, the issues that are central to that death, which is very important in the, the realm of the clinical negligence matters, is that a coroner can reach a finding of neglect. Now, it's only available in certain circumstances where there's been a gross failure to provide the most basic of medical care and then that has contributed to death more than minimally. I find that that's the nuclear option. Um, it's one that is it's typically most damning, certainly from a reporting perspective. The press love to get hold of that and shame the hospitals and the trusts involved because it proves that they were neglectful of that patient's care. But I think families desperately want to get hold of that, but in certain circumstances it's not applicable and not appropriate. So it can be useful 
definitely, and certainly from a clinical negligence perspective, it is definitely helpful for the case. Yeah, and we have um, seen it recently, haven't we, with the Nottingham maternity scans, and I think one of the children that had sadly passed away there, their finding was neglect, and then the CQC were able to use that then to find them. That's how it can apply outside of the realm of the inquest. So I think what's really important for our families and our clients is that what happens next and to ensure that it doesn't happen again and that another family doesn't have to go through the same process due to the same shortcomings. So can an inquest be used to ensure that whatever's happened to their relative or that um, person that's died doesn't happen again? In theory, yes. Um, And usually what will happen as part of the investigation process at a hospital, a trust, will carry out uh, an internal investigation. And usually that investigation process reveals the failings, the defects, and the trust will then, in theory, set up policies, procedures and activities to change things. Now, certainly in my experience, the same things do keep cropping up at the same hospitals time and time again, which is not very good. So what a coroner can actually do, they have power um, to issue what's called a prevention of future deaths reports. And what they do is effectively send a report stipulating the evidence that is heard in inquest, what the failing is, and write to the organisation or the person involved to say there's an issue here, people may die in the future, you have the power to fix it, you need to look at this rapidly now. That's quite a useful thing that a coroner can do and certainly from a family's perspective it's taken away from the trust effectively marking their own homework. You have an independent judge looking at it saying you're in the wrong, you need to fix it guys. I think it's very helpful. Okay, yeah that does sound helpful, especially in the context obviously we represent a lot of families with the Shrewsbury and Salford Hospital maternity scandal. If you were to have a coroner on record saying this is a trust-wide issue, it again just further cements the failings there, doesn't it, and helps support the community. So we have touched on this throughout, and obviously we come at this as um, clinical negligence solicitors, and we are always interested in the interplay. So what would you say is the main benefit to a clinical negligence solicitor if they're involved in the inquest process? I mean, from, from our perspective, I always think that it's critical to have a clinical negligence lawyer at inquest because it enables them to influence the evidence and that can be heard at that inquest. But it's a balance because the difficulty is we've got to remember and be careful which hat we wear. So either a clinical negligence lawyer hat or an inquest lawyer hat. Um, we shouldn't get the two mixed up because that can lead to problems with coroners kicking off, effectively saying, you don't know what you're doing. You need to keep it in the inquest realm here. So yeah, effectively, I think it's very, very important. I mean, what do you think when you had your recent inquest? I was really apprehensive and I, I spoke to you at length about it because I am very much a clinic lawyer at heart. That's what I do. So I'm not pretending to be an inquest lawyer or anything like that. And so I was really conscious that I didn't step on the coroner's toes and that I had to show it the process, the respect that it deserved. But also I have my own intentions and I very much want the inquest conclusion to help our case. And so it's just known the balance, isn't it, between trying to be helpful, trying to steer it, but also respect the process and know that they're not going to find blame and actually manage the client's expectations. Because in my case, it's been over two years since the death and we're only now in the sort of pre-inquest review stage so they've pinned quite a lot on this process and I feel like they're going to be disappointed no matter what I do and so yeah we'll see it's going well so far and um, yeah that's it stay tuned this has been very helpful for me I've got a lot of work to do well fab well thanks very much Laura thanks to Adam and Laura for lending their expertise more proof that lawyers don't bite 
If you have a legal issue you'd like me to put to the team to cover in an upcoming episode, please let me know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you found the conversation useful, please remember to follow or subscribe on your app so you're notified of new releases. Speak to you soon. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.